welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow here at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Welcome to part two of our election special. We're focusing on the future of foreign policy across both political parties. But before we get started today, we'd like to ask you to help us out with something. Power Problems is celebrating its one-year anniversary, and we'd like to ask you to help us improve the podcast by taking a quick survey. You can find it at www.cato.org forward slash podcast survey. If you could help us out by doing that or leaving a brief review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. So last time on the podcast, we spoke with Brian McGrath of the Hudson Institute. He argued that conservative foreign policy is changing pretty dramatically under Donald Trump. Today is the turn of the Democratic Party. There is no denying that Hillary Clinton's hawkishness was seen to a certain extent a liability during the 2016 election campaign. Barack Obama spent much of his eight years in office trying to put out foreign policy brush fires after running on a very domestic focused platform. So today, the Democratic Party really seems to be engaged in a debate over what it wants to see in the future of its foreign policy. Does it want to see the restraint of Obama, the liberal internationalism of Hillary Clinton, or something else entirely as Bernie Sanders and some others have proposed? So we're lucky to have with us to discuss these questions Jake Sullivan. Jake is currently a lecturer at Yale Law School, but previously held several positions in the Obama administration, including National Security Advisor to Joe Biden, as well as advising Hillary Clinton during a presidential campaign. Hopefully he can help us get to the bottom of where the Democratic Party is going on foreign policy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. As always, we'll start with a brief roundup of the week's news. Iran sanctions are back. The Trump administration caved at the last minute and actually offered eight different countries waivers to allow them to continue to import Iranian oil. So what do we think this bodes for the future of the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign against Iran? Well, the fact of them giving waivers doesn't by itself suggest that they've gone soft. The point of the waivers is if a country, an importer of oil from Iran like a China or a Japan or one of the European countries... Uh, has actually made substantial reductions, then they've qualified for these waivers. So I don't read too much into this decision. It was similar to similar waivers that were given during the Obama administration as well. For me, the bigger issue is that the whole point of sanctions is to generate leverage to produce some kind of strategic outcome. And what I have yet to be able to figure out is that this administration loves the sanctions but doesn't seem to have any idea what they want to convert that leverage into at the bargaining table or otherwise. It seems to be pressure for pressure's sake. And from my perspective, that's not going to end up in a particularly good place in terms of US policy towards Iran. Yeah, every every study on coercion that I've ever seen suggests that a couple of the conditions that are critical to success is one, having a concrete ask or demand, and two, having a timeline that makes fulfilling that demand an urgent necessity. Neither of those things are fulfilled in this case. So I don't know what 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 the outcome is. I mean, if they won't even sort of hint at what success is, it's hard to imagine they're ever going to get there. And I think part of the problem, part of the reason that they don't feel any sense of obligation to define what an endgame looks like is they just like the pressure. The pressure is for its own sake a good thing. It means that Iran is suffering and that almost by definition means the policy is succeeding. And uh, you know that can make you feel good in the moment, but it doesn't necessarily point towards something that's in the long-term national security interests of the United States. 
Okay, well, I, I think that leads us almost uh, naturally into the second question, which is, I'd like to come back to the, the issue of the Pentagon deploying up to 15,000 troops to the border to stop a caravan of migrants that are over a thousand miles away from the US border. This is clearly all an election stunt. Um, President Trump tweeted that this is an invasion of our country and our military is waiting for you. Um, so we asked our guest last week this too. Uh, what are your thoughts on immigration suddenly becoming a national security issue? Well, I don't have much to add on the specific issue of the caravan because it is so outrageous uh, that the military instrument of the United States is being politicized like this. And men and women who are sacrificing by serving in our armed forces are being used as political props in this way. Um, but I do, to your question about the broader way in which Trump is trying to turn immigration into a national security issue, have very deep concerns about where this is all headed. I mean, basically, what he has tried to do is mash up fear of the other and uh, homeland security, personal security, national security, all into a toxic blend of xenophobia and racism in an effort basically to scare the American people, rally his base, and create the sense that he and he alone can protect the good American people from these bad people. And I think this is extremely dangerous. We've seen demagogues do this in different contexts, in different countries, in different eras. And so there's a bit of a playbook for it. And Trump is playing that out to the maximum effect that he can wring from this. But I really hope that uh, it proves to be an ineffective political tool and tactic as we go forward because it it is deeply dangerous and corrosive uh, to the American idea. And uh, it also is taking our eye off the ball from genuine threats while Trump focuses on what is effectively a trumped up threat. Yeah, I, I co-signed most of what you said there. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, looking at this sort of just as data about the state of the United States today in 2018, um, you know, it's important, I think, for us to try to figure out what lessons the response of many Americans to Trump, the positive response that, unfortunately, I think many Americans have to Trump's demagoguery. I mean, this this tells us something about where we're where we're at, and I don't like where we're at in some of these. All right, there's far too many people in my mind who are susceptible to these sorts of claims, uh, rabble rousing, if you will. He doesn't have a majority, I don't think, anywhere close to it, but he has a big enough minority of people who are, um, you know, mobilizable by this sort of thing. That I think this should be. This is a red flag to me. You know, I noticed that several news agencies have actually finally come out and said there is one ad that the Republicans have been using in this campaign that is just too racist and demagogic about immigration, then they're actually pulling it from the air. Um, now, I should say we are recording this episode just the day before the election, so we actually don't know yet if this strategy on part of the Republicans actually worked or not. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, because... It, this is not just a matter of political curiosity, because if it plays out and the Republicans do well and feel they did well in part because this strategy succeeded, they'll double and triple down on it in ways that I think are going to tear at the fabric of America. 
Well, if you weren't depressed already, I have a third question about the news. Um, and it's about John Bolton, who gave a speech um, calling out Latin American countries like Cuba for human rights violations and dubbing them the Troika of tyranny. I keep saying Troika of terrorism, but it's Troika of tyranny. Is this hot air or is this some actual policy shift? You know, it's funny. As a former staffer to both the vice president and the secretary of state, when I hear something like that, I immediately think of how it came to be. Uh, you know, what the room was like where people were sitting around brainstorming what to say in this speech. And I can almost guarantee that a group of people were like, wow, this is kind of a boring speech. We don't have a headline. Let's come up with something. Someone throws out a really dumb phrase like troika of tyranny. And at first people laugh at it and they're like, ha ha ha, it's like axis of evil, not a great. And then eventually like, no, no, let's stick that in there. And then it is American policy. It is the most significant country in the hemisphere now stating some grand new pronouncement about our attitude towards other countries in, in, in the hemisphere. And what starts as a kind of probably, you know, a staffer spitballing ends up coming out of the mouth of the National Security Advisor. But I think most people see it for what it is, which is hot air. Yeah, I think the, the troika of tyranny narrowly beat out tyranny in a teapot as the as the tagline for this, uh, you know, this is I mean, what threat are we talking about? This is sort of silly, but I mean, on the one hand, it's silly, um, and I think you know, Jake, something you mentioned before, being tough for being tough's sake is is a win, and so just sh you know, showing off toughness and and tough talk is, you know, it's good enough for a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever. The problem with that is that. Uh, you know, tough talk like that has a tendency to harden into actual policy. When people are casting around looking for the next thing to do, sometimes that talk, I think, builds up into, hey, we actually ought to go, oh, I don't know, fund the Contras in Nicaragua and make sure that the civil war there is extremely costly. I mean, just to throw out the last time, Nicaragua was on anybody's mind in D.C. Right. Or Donald Trump himself has floated the idea of military intervention in Venezuela, which, uh, you know, the first time he did it, seemed like almost an error, but as we've seen reporting come out uh, about the administration's thinking on this subject, it's it's not entirely out of the realm of the possible that we do something along those lines, which, you know, oftentimes people ask the question, what could go wrong if we go do X or Y? This is one where you have to ask what could go right. Well, uh, I, I think that's perhaps a good place to pivot and start talking about our main topic of the day and the future of US foreign policy. Um, so we viewed this last time from the conservative point of view. This time, we'd like to talk about the left and the Democratic Party. Um, and it seems like the Democratic Party's foreign policy has really evolved since the end of the Cold War. Um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the Clinton administration, which made a number of choices in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War um, that defined America's approach to the world, things like expanding NATO, things like inviting China to join the WTO, all of these things that shaped the world and the way that we are now. So I wondered if you could start us off by talking a little about how you view this evolution of democratic foreign policy. Well, it seems to me that uh, after the end of the Cold War, um, whoever was going to be president, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican, would have to adjust to a unipolar moment, to a moment where you don't have the big enemy, the Soviet Union, and you've got to figure out where institutions like NATO uh, and others fit in. And I think that the Clinton administration essentially felt uh, that the United States had a responsibility to fellow democracies to offer them uh, membership in a broader community. And that was the main thrust uh, behind what they called the enlargement policy. 
What's interesting is the debates over NATO expansion over the last 25 years, um, those have been intramural debates within the Democratic Party. They've been debates within the strategic community more broadly, uh, probably around this table. We would have our own debates about whether this was a good thing, which I think it was, or a bad thing, which probably you guys think it was. But what Trump has done when you ask the question about the evolution of the Democratic Party is in a way uh, – brought the party back to basics. Um, you know, it used to be a bromide or almost like a superficial statement to say, we believe in alliances, or we believe that values have a role to play in foreign policy, or we believe that multilateral institutions matter for solving complex problems, or we believe in diplomacy. Okay, really, I mean, simplistic statements that now are contested propositions that need to be ad advocated for and defended. So in some ways, the questions around um, a NATO expansion, the role of humanitarian intervention, uh, particular policies around a country like Syria have taken a back seat to a convergence, I would say, between the left and the center left on some of these more foundational concepts, a kind of back to basics approach because Trump has thrown everything up in the air and forced a reexamination of some of the core principles that have motivated US foreign policy. You know, it's interesting that you say that it's opposition to Trump that has driven this because you would think if you went back into the, the Bush administration, you'd think that it would be opposition to the Bush administration's foreign policy that would have driven some sort of coalescence inside the Democratic Party. But instead, what we saw was actually a split in the party with some of the more dovish uh, members of the party arguing against, say, the Iraq war, and then actually a sizable chunk of, of the mainstream of the Democratic Party supporting the Bush administration's freedom agenda. So what is it that makes Trump different, just that he's arguing against alliances? No, I think it's two or three things. The first is that Trump represents a shift from what really is a bipartisan consensus and I think was true in the Bush administration as well for a positive sum view of US foreign policy, which is to say the United States is better off, we're safer, we're stronger when others are better off, safer and stronger. The Trump administration, Donald Trump himself, basically looks at things through a purely zero-sum lens, says if someone else is doing well, it must be at our expense and they must be laughing at us and we've got to go take them down. And when this comes to home to roost is with multilateralism. Basically, Trump sees any multilateral arrangement as necessarily constraining the uh, the power and capacity of the United States of America, whether that's a trade arrangement or it's an arms control arrangement or it's the European Union, which he thinks was created to harm the United States and, and has said so publicly. So I think he's going after foundational elements that um, are far more revolutionary than what the Bush administration was putting forward. That's point number one. Point number two is I'd say the convergence has come from both directions. The center left has come to see over the course of the Bush administration and then over the course of the Obama administration, the limits of the use of military power, particularly military power that um, you know has diplomacy as an under-resourced follow-up. And the, the left has come to see the importance of internationalism to advancing a progressive agenda and to the core idea that the United States stands for something beyond mere transactionalism or mere predatory unilateralism as, as the Trump administration has practiced it. So Bernie Sanders, for example, uh, has given speeches, has written op-eds talking about the need for the United States 
to push back against the authoritarian current in the world, something you wouldn't have really imagined him doing five years ago. But it's interesting that I don't think he's talking about that from the point of view of sort of military pushback against authoritarianism necessarily. He's he's advocating a foreign policy that's very restrained or realist in its sort of military applications, fairly engaged in its diplomatic or economic um, implications. But then he's talking about some sort of policy that just focuses on undermining kleptocracy around the world. And I'm not really sure what tools he's talking about to actually achieve that. Well, this is, I think, an important point of convergence across the party. When I worked for Vice President Biden, and you can go back and look at his speeches, it didn't get as much attention as I think it deserved. He spoke about the role of corruption as a tool of leverage and influence by autocratic regimes and state capitalist regimes as something that they practice for purposes of extending their influence and undermining democratic countries, allies, et cetera. Bernie Sanders has picked up that torch and is running with it in a big way. You're right. That's not fundamentally about the use of military force, but I would argue across the Democratic Party, no one is looking at the answer to a Russia or a China or authoritarian capitalist systems like Saudi Arabia as having military solutions, but they do look at them as having internationally minded solutions, not just retreating back into the United States, having the US be out there aggressively rallying like-minded nations to push back. And you ask about tools on corruption. There are tools in domestic policy that we have to take a look at, things like rules and laws around beneficial ownership, that the United States itself could do a better job of uh, you know, increasing transparency and decreasing the capacity of shell corporations to kind of hide money as it moves around. And then there are tools that you can talk about internationally, which are uh, all related to how we work with fragile de democratic systems that can be preyed upon by a Russia or a China um, and have them be bolstered. Uh, things as simple as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or as complex as the kinds of uh, accountability mechanisms, transparency mechanisms that can help make these nations more resilient against the onslaught, not the military onslaught, but the uh, kleptocratic onslaught uh, of, of authoritarian actors. That's what I think Bernie Sanders has in mind. That's what I think Joe Biden has in mind. And, and I actually think you can see a pretty consistent message across the Democratic Party on this issue. Well, as speaking as the elder statesman in the room, um, old enough to remember when when the Democratic Party, uh, although you know during the Cold War, it certainly you know was part of the containment grand strategy consensus, if you will, uh, opposed more or less every single proposed or actual use of military force in practice that wasn't sort of you know fighting the Soviets directly, um, and that changed decisively under Bill Clinton. And nothing, uh, no, not a peep after 2001. Uh, and in the 2016 campaign, I, I, I uh, had tipped to Mike Azenko, who's had an intern compile some of the data on on candidates' speeches about military intervention and defense spending and so on. But I, I sort of did a quantitative analysis, and Hillary Clinton was like one of the most, you know, two or three hawkish people on the either side, Republican or Democratic, in terms of, you know. Being interested in using military force abroad and so on, so I, I'm not sure. So I wanted to hear from you. How, what so what that Bernie Sanders is saying this? What's the future look like? Is it more what Bernie Sanders is and Joe Biden might be saying today, or or does Hillary Clinton still represent the likely sort of you know 
stance towards the use of force because, you know, Obama talked more restrained than Bush did, but he maintained the war on terror in essentially its same format for another eight years. So I, I'm just not convinced how much has changed yet. Well, first of all, I think this is painting a caricature of Hillary Clinton that I don't think is entirely fair. I mean, it wasn't like she was talking about going out and starting a bunch of wars in different places. I mean, one place that probably shot her up the list in the Mike Ozenko rankings, which I haven't actually seen, so I'm not sure what he's referring to, would be doing something in Syria, something about Syria. And I would argue that if you think about the areas that even the most restraintist type foreign policy practitioners would say are core, okay, the, the, uh, the Persian Gulf and uh, Europe, um, that what has happened in uh, Syria over the last few years has destabilized both of them in, in a substantial way. What's happened in that arc of instability uh, across the Middle East with, with an epicenter in Syria. And you look at the pressures on the European Union, uh, the rise of populist nationalism across Europe, they are not all entirely traceable to the Syria conflict, but the Syria conflict poured su substantial fuel on the fire for those things. So I don't think that that's just kind of random Middle Eastern adventurism. Hillary's view was this problem is so acute and comes to touch on vital interests of the US that we have to think about some combination of strategies. And and I'm, just to interrupt for two seconds, that, that's all fine. I'm not saying there's not a justification for these things, but my, my, my question is, does that argument, that line of thinking, justify the next intervention in Libya or the next intervention in Syria from the next Democratic president because that's still the line of thinking that the Democratic Party is pursuing? Or, or has anything changed about that, do you think? No. I, I, look, I basically think you will not find um, any of the major candidates running for the Democratic nomination in 2020 advocating for opening a new front across the Middle East. And I think you will find virtually all of them arguing in one way or another for some fairly dramatic turn in the quote unquote forever war, something that leads to a narrowing in scope and focus of the use of military force across the region. I think you will hear an increasing chorus of voices in the Democratic Party saying, We've got to bring the war in Afghanistan to a responsible close. What that means and over what timetable is an open question. Uh, I think there will be a real push early on if there is a Democratic House after tomorrow. It, we'll know when the podcast comes out on Yemen. Um, so the thrust and the energy in the party is in that direction. But the reason that I was focused on the Syria example is that I don't think these are linear uh, or sort of secular trends in the Democratic Party. I think the party, as on most issues, for good and for ill, holds multiple propositions in its mind at the same time, which often you have to do in foreign policy. And one of them is that we do have to look at the, at the systemic consequences of instability, particularly with migration patterns. Um, and so could I imagine in the future somebody saying, we've got to have a mix of tools with diplomacy, development, but also some military tools, I could see it. I don't think that's at all where the energy will be now, but I don't think we should project out too far into the future on this because the lessons from Iraq and Libya tell you one thing, the lessons from Syria might tell you something else, they might not, who knows. Uh, but 
this is going to be a constantly evolving factor within the Democratic Party as we move forward. So perhaps another way that we could get at this, because we, we're basically talking about things that might actually be schisms in the Democratic Party in the future, but perhaps another way to look at this is, what do you think the, the big issues are for, for Democrats moving forward? We've mentioned kleptocracy and corruption, obviously, already, but are there other issues that particularly sort of will be motivating, say, Democratic candidates in 2020? I think that the that Democrats are going to be looking at uh, a range of issues that cross cross national boundaries and that require global cooperation to solve that no one country can solve on their own and that cannot be solved without the United States playing a major role. That includes climate change, pandemic disease, uh, global financial uh, management of sorts um, to make sure that we don't have another financial crisis that turns into either a great recession or, God forbid, a second great depression, uh, the spread of weapons of mass destruction. So this whole set of issues where I think Democrats are basically going to argue that the United States has to play an important catalytic role in mobilizing the kind of international cooperation that will solve these issues. Now, that doesn't sing in the you know, that's not going to make the top 20 paragraphs of the stump speech, but it's going to be a vision of America's role in the world that is far more cooperative, far more based on diplomacy, far more focused on the types of threats that actually impact the American people, the possibility of an epidemic, the existential threat of climate change, the possibility that terrorists get their hands on weapons of mass destruction and the like. So that'll be one big area. I think a second significant area that you will hear from Democratic candidates um, beyond the issue of, of corruption and kleptocracy is thinking about how we structure our trade deals in the future in a different way, how we connect them more to the kinds of domestic investments that are required and how we bring new issues to the table when we're talking about trade deals. And not just things like currency, but questions like tax evasion, like uh, uh, monopoly power, like uh, you know, the, not just labor rights, but broader human rights, that there will be a set of issues on the progressive agenda for how to define what a trade deal looks like going forward that will be different from trade deals in the past. So those are some of the issues where I think you'll hear Democrats making a really uh, full-throated case. And what I haven't mentioned are the, uh, you know, the major geopolitical issues of Russia and China. Russia is going to be a hot topic in the 2020 cycle for reasons we all know too well, China is interesting because this is one where it is hard for me to see. You, you, you want to get to schisms, I know, but there's a there's a striking consensus on a much darker, much harder line on China uh, that is not just about the Trump administration, is not just about Republicans. It's pretty much across the Democratic Party as well, and. It concerns me that we may be headed towards a self-fulfilling prophecy in the US-China relationship because of all of the momentum, momentum and energy behind this idea that we got to stick it to China before it's too late. Uh, and, and that will be a factor in 2020. Yeah, it's one of the most sort of cogent criticisms I've heard of the Democratic Party's foreign policy over the last pretty much two years is that they have allowed the the Trump issues related to Russia to turn them into Russia hawks. Um, but it does sound like you're saying like something similar is happening on China. So even as the Democratic Party seems to be moving away from perhaps wars of choice in the Middle East, they seem to be moving towards a more hawkish or confrontational approach on great power politics, just like the current administration is doing. I think it's more true in a funny way. And 
I reserve the right to change my opinion on this <laughs> um, with China than it is with Russia. Yes, the rhetoric on Russia is, is very hawkish. Yes, the direct threat to our democracy from Russian interference is very real and Democrats will be extremely tough on that, including not just by playing defense but by trying to actively push back. But I don't think you're going to see Democrats making the case for an unbalanced or escalatory policy towards Russia writ large. I think they want to manage the Russia issue, try to the maximum extent possible to put guardrails around Putin, to minimize the degree to which he can successfully destabilize Western democracies, including our own. And, and so I, I, don't, I don't expect that that will become a precipitous, it will take a precipitous turn into some kind of confrontation. China I worry more about because it is hard to strike the right line when it comes to China. I mean, we obviously have to have a balance between robust competition and cooperation and how you hit that line right is very difficult. And what worries me is that we are beginning, in my view, to turn so sharply into the competition frame that it's going to be very hard to turn back. And there's no margin in it for a candidate in the 2020 cycle to say, hey, everybody, let's calm down about China. We can deal with this. We can be mature. So in all likelihood, the political incentives will drive this conversation in an even more hawkish direction than it is right now. And that, that's exactly one of the points I was just going to bring up is that there's kind of two tracks. There's you know things the left thinks at home in its living room and then the things the left will say in public and especially during political campaigns or from the White House because there's a limit on the things you can get away with saying. And I think – I thought we saw this pretty clearly with Obama over Syria. There was the stuff he would, might have liked to do. Uh, and, and then there's what he felt compelled to say and do in, in public. And those were, I thought, pretty different at some times. Um, moving forward, I think you know the China one is a really great example. You know, Clinton starts sort of making engagement with China a much bigger deal, but I don't see any Democrat being able to say that out loud in the near future. Well, a big part of the reason actually is because the story on the left and the right is that all these elites told us this stuff was going to happen with China. They said almost by the laws of physics, political liberalization follows economic liberalization. They said almost by the laws of physics, China's rise will be into the international system as we've designed it and they'll become an acquiescent member. And that didn't happen. Oh, they also said that China coming into the WTO would you know, boost everybody and be a great thing. And, uh, you know, there's been some good studies that show that uh, it hit, hit particularly hard in, in certain parts of the United States, like uh, millions of jobs impacted by China's entry into the WTO. So I think it's going to be hard for anyone to say, hey, you know, the whole logic of engagement, we've been, you know, going back to the Clinton administration. Let's just keep riding that train because I don't actually think – and for, for understandable reasons, there's a huge appetite to take that on. Not because people are know-nothings but because actually a lot of the promises that were made have not borne out. And so the real question for me is whether somebody can find a way to say it is so important we get this right, that we not just – lay down in the face of obvious abuses and more aggressive tendencies, that we find a way to, to curb China's aggression both in the, in the security and in the economic domain, but that we do so with a view towards steering this relationship onto a sustainable path 
that avoids escalation and confrontation. I just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that, that, that anyone will really make that case. The other thing that I would say that's really important to watch for as we head into 2020 is the presence of China as a galvanizing force for domestic investment is going to be very attractive for Democratic candidates. They're going to want to say infrastructure, education, human capital, innovation in R&D, all those investments we have to make because China. And, uh, and so there's an extra reason why Democrats would hold China up in, in a kind of quasi-Cold War frame without ever using that phrase because they will see it as a way to make the case for a much more robust domestic economic agenda. So actually, I think this provides a really good segue into our last question, um, which is I wanted to ask you what you see as the key differences um, or potential for cooperation between liberals and conservatives on foreign policy. You know, we've mostly been talking about areas where there's actually a fair degree of con convergence, at least between, I'd say, non-Trump Republicans and, and Democrats. But there's some big differences too, right? Well, I think I'd, it's hard to answer the question in a way because I'm not sure what counts as conservative foreign policy anymore. It's been so scrambled by what's happened with the Trump administration. Um, but I'd, I'd point to two differences. One is to do with this idea of embedded liberalism, which is a kind of fancy concept. But basically, the idea being that the set of international institutions and America's role in them really worked during a time when the social contract in the United States was delivering for people. And that when the social contract stopped delivering because of rising income inequality, stagnant wages, uh, loss of social mobility and so forth, the, the link to the entire panoply of international engagement and in institutions was severed. And so it's not just about domestic investment to make the United States more competitive. It's the entire bargain between the American government and the American people. And I, I think the liberals would say, we have to think about these two things coming together. These are connected deeply and intimately and and we can no longer think about a line between foreign and domestic because you really can't have one without the other. The second is the degree to which, and maybe this is inherent in the difference between liberals and conservatives, I would say there's still a strong view on the conservative never Trump side that we just got to get back to doing what we were doing before. Uh, whereas I would say in the Democratic Party, almost across the board, left or center left, there is a kind of sense of Hurricane Trump has come in, he's destroyed a lot of the infrastructure of US foreign policy and of the international order, and now we can't just build back the way we were before, we have to build back better. And, and so there's a, a kind of sense of let's look hard at what our blind spots were, what the weaknesses were, and whether that's true on trade or Middle East policy. Uh, or multilateral cooperation on these big ticket items that we talked about earlier. There's a kind of ferment uh, that I think a lot of conservatives look at as squishiness, as kind of giving up on what's really worked for the U.S. over time, uh, and that's another big difference that I see. Uh, you know, on a lot of specific issues, though, it doesn't play out that much because. Um, there is, as I was saying in answer to one of the first questions, a kind of back to basics element to all of this and liberals and conservatives agree on the value of allies and values and you know, basic 
norms of respect and multilateralism as necessary to deal with transnational problems. Uh, and so in a way, the differences get um, very much minimized by the existence of a disruptive force like Donald Trump. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, <clears throat> I think um, you know the first thing you, you you talked about is one of the differences there. You know, the, the America's role, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the social contract. I think I think that is exactly one of the things Trump you know harped on without maybe saying it quite that eloquently. But what I thought one of the geniuses of of Trump's approach was to kind of meld domestic and and foreign in a in a new way. Um, that resonated with a lot of people. No longer is foreign policy something that's for elites or for the globalized corporations. It's it's supposed to be for me, Joe American, and for the first time, that means the rest of the world is relevant. And you know, of course, Trump's version of it is a little bit different from what the Democrats would. But I, I think it would be good for the left if they could reconnect foreign policy with domestic policy. Um, I'm afraid, though, that some of the key issues you mentioned up top. In your sort of list of those things are things that sound a little bit like elitist Democratic Party issues like climate change and pandemics, things that don't seem to move the economic needle that much. And it seems to me that, you know, the closer you hit to trade and things like jobs, that's probably the, the stronger place to go. For well, I mean, there's the a, there's a um, you know, we have to create two buckets. One bucket is what sells in a political campaign. And then there's the, when you govern, what do you really have to go to sleep worried about at night and be working on? And it may be that climate change is not in that first bucket. I, I'm really kind of astonished it, isn't, it hasn't moved there yet, but it is definitely big time in the second bucket. So in, you know, this conversation to a certain extent is toggled between the politics of foreign policy as it relates to the Democratic Party and the substance of foreign policy as it relates to the Democratic Party. And that list that I was giving was really much more about how Democrats are actually thinking about using the instruments of American foreign policy to advance US national security interests. But I think, and one of them on the list and a key one is was is the economic side. It's how how do we think about some combination of trade deals and our relationship with all these other disembodied economic institutions to make sure that we're delivering prosperity for the American people. But a huge amount of that lies in getting domestic policy right. And if you're a Democrat working on international economic policy, you're probably in a way closer to where the Republicans are in international economic policy than you are to where the Democrats kind of naturally are on domestic economic policy. That has been the history since the end of the Cold War. I think that will change with the next administration, that this the restitching of a progressive consensus in the international sphere uh, will be a hallmark of whoever the next president is. Well, that's been really fascinating. We're, we're out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'd like to thank our producer, Jeff Geld, and everybody at home for listening. We'll see you next time on Power Problems. <laughs> <laughs>